0: Can I tell a knock knock okay. joke, dif-
1: please? Because
0: of hmm. I'm thinking of them um, knocking on the door of the adenoid tissue to see knock knock.
1: Who's there? Who's there?
0: AAV. A A V. A- a-,
1: a-, a-, a a V who?
0: A A V gene therapy. It's the- not. I didn't sh- say it was going to be
2: good. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Not Yet a Doctor, the podcast where if you don't like your jeans, just go down to Levi's and get yourself a new pair. Um, my name is Om, and I'm about to finish my PhD. My name is Alistair,
2: and I have my PhD in chemistry from Queen's University.
0: And my name is Yenna, and I never remember the order that we're supposed to introduce ourselves in.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we fix it in the edit.
0: Yeah, <laughs> fixed in post.
1: <laughs> exactly. And we're your PhD three... Yeah. Figuring out what will be. Nice. <laughs> Perfect. So uh, I want to talk about something really cool uh, and that's becoming near nearer and dearer to my heart. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm just wrapping up with uh, my PhD uh, from McGill in Biochem and I was recently hired at Pfizer uh, in their rare disease research unit. So we get to have a lot of uh, fun and look at monoallelic diseases or monogenic diseases. What that means to be specific is like, a disease that's caused by a specific mutation or loss of function of like a gene that you might you know that's very important to a function uh, of your bodies and these tend to affect very very small populations of people um, and that's you know part of why we call them rare diseases and you know one of the main avenues to try and treat these diseases is kind of what i hinted at at the beginning of the episode why not just take these genes, you know, these not functioning genes, and just replace them with a functioning version. Um, Now, it sounds very easy on paper, right? (laughs) Just like put a new gene in. But we have to remember that, you know, your body is made of millions, billions of different cells, right? And we need to, you know, these diseases typically affect a specific cell population or a specific cell type. And our goal is to try and target those cells Um, put in the genes into those cells and get it working or expressing that gene of interest to try and fix that disease. And then there's also a question of, you know, can this gene last a long time in the system? Can we avoid immune response to that gene once it's inside of you? There's a lot of barriers before, you know, we can just have an effective gene therapy, right? So I want to ask you guys right off the bat, plain and simple, what do you know overall about You know, what gene therapy is, or what we were, or examples of diseases that could be treated with a gene therapy. Any thoughts on that?
2: Okay, well, I feel like the onus is on me (laughs) to go first because I think I have less knowledge in this Mm -hmm. field. Um, So I really, gene therapy sounds really futuristic Mm -hmm. to me. And um, I think in other conversations with you, it sounds like it is quite a new kind of um, evolving field. new-ish, I don't know, I guess the 90s were almost 30 years really. ago. Um, but, uh, yeah, I really don't know anything about gene therapy. Mm-hmm. I have no idea how you would go into a cell and, like, get out the genetic information from the nucleus and replace that. I love that, that. just sounds like... Mm-hmm. I think, I feel like cells try and protect themselves from anything getting into the cell right. wall, let alone its nucleus, so it, it almost sounds like cellular brain surgery. <laughs> it kind of is. Uh, yeah. And then the, the only other thing is we had an episode recently about a movie that kind of hinted at genes and gene therapy. And I would say to listeners that are maybe like this topic is kind of foreign to them completely, uh, go listen to that episode. It's a great episode. And we kind of touch on a lot of basics about biology and that. Exactly. Um, which yeah. maybe will give kind of prior knowledge for what genes are, how they work, that kind of thing. So. Yeah.
0: The episode's yeah, called Gattaca. Gattaca.
2: Yeah,
0: Gattaca. Mm-hmm. Check that
2: out. So that's that's my knowledge. I really don't know much. Sienna, you know a little bit about this. <laughs> I know a
0: little bit, but not mm-hmm. a lot about gene therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've encountered it <laughs> in my studies, I guess, but I don't think about it a lot because it's not necessarily directly relevant to the disease I study, which is not a monogenic disease. The main one that comes to mind for me that we've talked about be, like before, you and I, on. Um, Mm -hmm. that I know of is the spinal muscular atrophy clinical trials for gene therapy, which I think is really cool. And I think we're going to discuss that later. So, um, but yeah, it's a really technically Mm -hmm. difficult thing to do Mm -hmm. to change genes in humans. Um, and the other thing that it makes me think of that we may not talk, well, we may, I think maybe brush on, but not really talk about is the, uh, CRISPR babies who had the gene editing done to remove the. Um, exactly. to make them immune to HIV virus. So that's the other sort of pop culture example yeah. I can think of for gene therapy and gene editing, which that one was done by CRISPR, but not all gene therapies have to be done by CRISPR, and exactly. I think the majority are not. And so like,
1: I think you nailed other on the you know The majority of these things, like we talked about, single gene defect disorders, some Im- immediate examples that typically you know are targets for a lot of big pharma and current like, academic research is cystic fibrosis is a big one. Um, uh, that's a single mm-hmm. gene that causes, you know, right, buildup of, of mucus yeah. within um, the lungs and can eventually lead to, you know, impaired ability to breathe and has like a very short prognosis, unfortunately. ALS is a big one. We've also talked about that on this podcast. Duchenne muscular dystrophy and Huntington's disease is also another one mm-hmm. where, you know, the Hunting's gene develops these repeats, yeah. right, that eventually lead to plaques or fibrils formation and eventually death of the neuron but if we can replace that gene with a functioning hunting gene then hey we've got good news uh, for these patients and so in particular i want to focus <laughs> on uh, gene replacement therapy rather than gene editing therapy so exactly like sienna said gene editing therapy goes in and we use some um tools from our m- uh, molecular bio toolkit to effectively change the sequence of your actual genome yeah. What I'm going to focus on uh, and is kind of an easier version because there's still a lot of work that I think we need to do on gene editing to get it really, really precise. But in gene replacement therapy, Mm -hmm. it's another cool window where all we do is just overexpress the appropriate protein that we're interested in, right? And so one of the big examples of this is this disease called SCID, or severe combined immunodeficiency, right? Where a lot of these young patients, particularly young children, are born with a, a, a compromised immune system, right? And typically this can lead to a prognosis of like two to three years. It's a very sad um, outcome for a lot of these um, children. Wow. Um, and SCID itself is, it is monogenic, but it can depend on different genes, depending on the type of SCID you might have. Um, in particular, one interesting um, one of the original ways that we've used gene therapy back in the 1990s, and I also want to add as an anecdote, the idea of gene therapy was going, uh, going on since probably the uh, 60s, 65, I believe, is when they first did it in cells where they were just able to overexpress a gene and fix uh, a monogenic uh, disease within a, you know within a culture dish. But the first time on humans was with the Skid trial, uh, and you know it, they only did it on two babies it was a very very small trial um and it was honestly pretty positive the first 1990s one and in this scenario they use well i won't give away the hint yet because a lot of this podcast is going to be about how we deliver the the genes inside but they replaced the um, immune system uh, Replaced genes in the immune system specifically called adenosine deaminase it's really really important for the generation of dna and so that was a particular issue for their immune system because the deficiency leads so block in your ability to make T cells and natural killer lymphocytes. Those are really, really important players to your immune system and your ability to fight off disease. So once they were able to replace this gene into these, uh, in these children, it was not a perfect response. They did see increases in the counts of T cell or NK cells, but not as good as their control subsets. So it was a positive first start, you know, and we want to look further into it. And so, you know, moving forward a little bit into, you know, the, the uh, millennia, the 2000s, they focus on another version of skid called X-Link SCID. This one is caused by a mutation in a gene known as the gamma chain of the cytokine receptor, okay? And this is also important for the ability for these uh, immune cells, T cells, B cells, and natural killer cells to also divide and proliferate. The B cells in particular are important for your your memory, right, the memory of your immune system, to remember when you had a previous infection. But what's important here is that they weren't able to do to, um, these children weren't able to actually develop an immune system, and these are older children now. We're talking now between the ages of 10 to 16 in this trial. And so excellent is a little bit less uh, severe, but still shortens lifespan significantly. So in this trial, there were 12 patients. Of those 12 patients, eight of them had a really great response. They did well. And this was really interesting because what they did is they took the stem cells, hematopoietic stem cells, go back to our stem cell episode, <laughs> plug that in, right? And also even a little bit of the, stem, uh, the cell fate episode. And so they took those, these hematopoietic stem cells. These are of the lineage that make your uh, immune system, particularly your, uh, your leukocytes, if I recall correctly, and I think your lymphocytes as well. But someone can correct me on that later. Um, but that's okay. <laughs> so they, um, these are hematopoietic stem cells, and they did the gene therapy on those cells specifically and then re-injected them back into the patients. So really, really targeted in this scenario. Um, and then once they put it back into the patients, eight of them did well, but the big downfall was four of them, unfortunately, developed leukemia, right? And this has to do with mm. the vehicle, the means of which we got these genes into um, the cells.
2: Quick question about that. So the leukemia was caused by the way that they were introducing the cells. It had nothing to do with the illness. Like it wasn't to,
1: like skid. Skid doesn't cause leukemia. I don't believe so. No. no. Yeah, because because your cells don't divide in the first place in skid, you couldn't develop that. So one. Right, yeah. And they also compared it, of course, okay. to the patients, the, uh, the placebo patients, and they didn't develop it. Right. In this scenario, they didn't use placebo. They use a history. So this is we'll get into that too in these kind of gene therapy trials one thing that they do is they won't have necessarily a control group but they'll have a history of of people who have that disease mm-hmm. and they'll compare it to that group mm-hmm. that data set rather so that everyone can be treated they they do that with vaccine trials too
2: or like a lot of a lot of trials with like life-saving medicine you don't have a control group cuz like you don't want to give people with a disease a sugar pill and not cure their disease potentially yeah. right like
1: yeah exactly who currently have that disease exactly right so Currently, to date, you know, this fortunately, this uh, leukemia issue really just promoted scientists to try and figure out ways around this. You know, you know, we don't want this. So it didn't necessarily stop the train, but it was a pretty big stall for the FDA and more considerations to have um, <laughs> when we're looking at gene therapies. Right. Um, and so I'm going to share my screen really yeah. quick. Currently, we have four uh, approved gene therapies by the FDA, I'll say in America, okay, where I'm at. Um, And we have these four, and they're very cool. Um, The first is Glybera, which was approved. at least Actually, this is not by the FBI, by the European Medical Association, so at Europe uh, in 2012. And this is for patients diagnosed with a disease called lipoprotein lipase deficiency. Don't ask me about it. I don't know much about it, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) it it was approved. Another one is this Imligic. These, you know, drug, drug uh, companies, biotech companies, pharmaceutical companies, these names, there's always an origin for them. But you always end up with something that's a tongue twister. <laughs> right? It looks like my wordle
2: guess this morning.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so in this scenario, it's unresectable, cutaneous, subcutaneous, and nodal lesions in patients with melanoma. So this is for a cancer treatment. And the next one, Luxterna. Uh, is for this gene called rpe65 for retinal dystrophy right very interesting that's in 2017 and most recently and what's going to be part of the focus of today's podcast is zolgensma okay zolgensma okay and this is from novartis okay Uh, our neighbors and this is approved in 2019 uh, by the fda and it's for patients who are suffering from um spinal muscular muscular atrophy who are Mm -hmm. less than two years old and i want to really like hit this on the head sma which i'm going to call spinal muscular atrophy is a disease with a very very short prognosis period and it particularly impacts infants Mm -hmm. so you can see how this is a really important area um, and, you know, prolonging the survival of these patients, even if it's 10 years, 20 years, whatever it might be, is significant. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and we'll also see that later when we talk about the trial, like the, the barrier for success is a little bit, not lower, but um, it's, we're just trying to get these children to have some uh, higher quality of life. For it to be approved uh, later on as well.
2: I was just going to say something I noticed in this table, which will be on our social medias, I mm-hmm. assume, Yes. Um, is that all of these gene therapies use AAV as the vector, because we're talking about the delivery method, right? Yes, sir. Except uh, ImLEGIC, mm-hmm. which uses the herpes simplex virus. I mm-hmm. think that's really interesting that herpes is used as a vector for therapy. Because it's really
0: yeah. good at getting into our cells.
2: It's really <laughs> good. It's well, particularly yeah. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I guess it, it's been stripped of its like bad elements. But
0: it's not the king anymore, I guess, of viral infectors.
2: Yeah, <laughs> vectors, exactly. <right? laughs> yeah. For humans.
1: It's, um, so all these, yeah, all these vectors are. It, this is going to be today's focus, right? Mm-hmm. My goal is to talk about how do we get these genes delivered, right? Yeah. Gene delivery service, the Uber service for genes, <laughs> into, <laughs> into the cells that we're interested in. And I hope that we have a really cool uh, discussion about this. Yeah. Um, today, I want to so the, there are many ways to do this, right? And I have a little table here that talk about all the ways currently, whether that's off from the bench, yeah. all the way uh, to clinical trials, ways that we can get DNA into a cell. And I'm going to go through it very quickly, um, and I'll talk about which I'm going to focus on. So we have these nucleic acid-based uh, methodologies, which just means, you know, we put in the nucleic acid and we hope, the, the cells take it up. And when I say nucleic acid, we're talking either RNA or DNA in this scenario, okay? And so we have you know these decoys, which basically um, can sequester other proteins and cause them to not function anymore. We can do expression plasmids. These are plasmids or tools that we use to overexpress a gene in a cell. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have things like artificial chromosomes, similar thing. This, you can think of it exactly like the name says. It's like a chromosome, um, but it's just, Hanging out, it's and we can you know keep it in there. Exactly, it's made in the lab. And each of these, and I'll also include this. I think this is probably a more interesting one to include uh, for our social media. Have different like persistence, like how long they actually last. The therapeutic window is what we would re- we, we would call that, right? And different ones like the um, straight oligonucleotides, so just chains of nucleotides, usually hours to days. Um, and where an artificial chromosome or a transposon can be pretty stable because they go into our genomes. They can actually integrate into our genomes in some scenarios, and we'll talk about that. Um, and that that is a significant problem to a lot of this, uh, a lot of uh, the therapeutic interventions we're going to be uh, using.
2: I like in this table that the duration of persistence for the artificial chromosome is like,
1: eh, stable. It's like plus or minus yeah. stable. <laughs> like and so the mean. reason. Exactly. And that's we'll get into this as well. The reason for that is that it can integrate and it can also not. But in both mm. scenarios, it hangs out within the cell. One thing that's missing here mm-hmm. uh, and that's relevant to us nowadays is what's called, you know, is, is RNA itself. Mm-hmm. OK. And so this is particularly interesting because of the COVID vaccine. Yeah, right? exactly. Mm. I want to make a note that the COVID vaccine itself is not a gene therapy. Right. What mm-hmm. it is, it's, but it's, what it's doing is very, very similar. It's introducing an exogenous gene or exogenous protein. And when I say exogenous, I'm trying to say, I should, yeah, what I'm trying to say is not human, right? A viral particle. Uh, And it's delivered by what's called this lipid nanoparticle, okay? And this lipid nanoparticle goes into the cell, goes into your muscles in particular, Mm -hmm. right? And can actually go into the cells, thankfully, and then the RNA is released. And then that RNA makes protein. We know that, right? Um, from kind of how we work. It's DNA, RNA, protein, but we can skip the whole DNA step if we can just put the RNA in there. Yeah. And the other, the other benefit of that and why it's such a great vehicle for a vaccine is that it's short-term. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not long-lived. But that's something to keep in mind because right now, a lot of folks and a lot of companies are, are trying to push the use of RNAs for gene replacement therapy, right? Particularly if, something, if it's something uh, that... Um, occurs in cells that divide rapidly, right? For example, like a liver liver disease, PKA is one that comes to mind immediately, where you can treat um, the liver cells and they divide very quickly. So you, over, you always dilute the effect anyway, even if we use like a virus or some other means, any of the nucleic acid-based means. So you would have to do repeat injections probably like on like a weekly basis. It's not great, but for a disease that could, you know, for a therapy that could prolong your life, Dozens of years, I'm going to take an injection every week, right? Mm -hmm. There's no debate about that. But let's get into the focus of today, which is the (laughs) viral-based means of delivery. And it sounds scary, right? Like, you're going to put a virus in me? We're not putting a virus in you. We're just taking, right, the structure of the virus and putting in a payload. And so think of it more like a Trojan horse, yeah. right? The Trojan horse is not a real horse, <laughs> for those who are confused. We're not putting <laughs> real horses in yourselves, okay, guys? Exactly. Don't worry. So we're not putting a fully functioning virus. It is functioning, but it has a different payload. Yeah. So to put it simply, I don't want to get too deep into you know how viruses themselves work, but a virus is, you know, not necessarily living in the same way that your cells are. They need your cells' machinery, okay, to divide and make more of themselves, mm-hmm. right? That's how a virus mm-hmm. works. That's how you get a high viral load. That's how we test for COVID, you know, day to day, right? Um, uh, we, the virus needs your cells, so it'll infiltrate your cells. It'll use the machinery to make more of itself. And in doing so, you make more and you get infect more, part uh, more, more. Um, uh, cells take over the whole system and in some scenarios kill in other scenarios and eventually the whole world exactly eventually the whole world right in these scenarios we kind of take that away and we select for different viruses based on how often they replicate um, how efficient they are and how do they cause it do they cause symptoms do they cause disease right mm-hmm. um, and so we have like retroviruses we have lentro, lentivirus for example um if I, HIV is a retrovirus yeah. I believe that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have these adenoviruses, which are like the common cold is an adenovirus, right? I've seen bar virus, very rough one, <laughs> herpes virus, and a variety of others. But we use these as basically cargo loads yep. to deliver our gene products inside. And like exactly like Alice said earlier, some of the you know, go-tos seem to be the ones that are you know, three out of four times being approved are these AAVs. So, what is an AAV? Why do we care about it? Why is it interesting? So, AAVs were first discovered by Bob Atchison, uh, David Hogan, and Wallace Rowe in 1965 from extracts of human adenoids. Okay, do you guys know what adenoids no are? No clue. Any idea? Never heard of this. No. They're closer than you think. They're <laughs> a patch of tissue, <laughs> right, like right behind your like tonsils, behind your like uvula, uh-huh. right, and they're like a uh, part of your um, lymphatic system. Huh. So a lot of immune cells are there. And you can imagine, you know, we breathe. So it's a high, a site for like a lot of infection mm-hmm. that can happen. Mm-hmm. And so back in the day, one way that we would screen for viruses or different viruses that we, you know, humans might be receptive to is by getting adenoid tissue and getting extracts from them. And we would spin them down really, really fast. Mm-hmm. And then we would check, oh, what viruses are down here? You know, because viruses are these tiny, tiny little... Um, particles and we can assay them and ask the question you know what's what is their genome what do they express what are you know what are the proteins along their capsids or envelopes depending on the type of virus for those who are interesting capsids envelopes are just the coding around the DNA for a virus and so yeah so they uh, take those adenoids take them in cells we can culture them spin them down find out which viruses are there and they found this weird set of viruses that for whatever reason, weren't dividing even though they were infecting cells, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? They were going into the cell. They were just hanging out there, and they weren't. They had a really uh, not great viral potential, <laughs> right? But that also allowed them to be a really cool tool, mm-hmm. right? I also want to add that you know AAVs, we get infected by them all the time. They're everywhere, um, and typically for most humans, they get we get infected around one to three years of age. Um, And it's not associated with any type of disease or illness. So, like, we don't even respond to it. They just, they infect us and we're like, huh, it's is another day in the life. (laughs) Just hanging out. Exactly. And so they're part of this family, these AAVs. And I'm going to spoil why, I'm not giving the full name of the AAVs yet because I'm going to tell you why in a second. Um, They have, they're part of this family called the dependovirus family. And so what it turns out is that the reason that they don't, have like a high viral potential is because they actually need a secondary virus to help them mm. <laughs> to, uh, to integrate into our genomes and then make more virus, mm. right? And so that's usually another adenovirus, right? Or a, um, or like another, a herpes virus or a papilloma or vaccinia virus. Mm. All of these different types of viruses can actually promote its entry into what's known as the, like, the lysogenic cycle. But don't worry about that. That's for the virologists out there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and so uh, once, they, once they, you know, extracted these AAVs and were like, oh, these are, these are kind of lame versions of viruses, right? You know, but hey, don't worry, we're, we're going we're gonna to redeem them in a moment. It turns out there are 13 serotypes, I'll explain that in a second, of AAVs, 1 through 13. And each of them have differences in what's called tropism, mm-hmm. okay, and their ability to transduce, so their efficiency of transduction. I'm gonna explain all these weird words I just said. Serotype, okay, is another way of kind of, not speciating, but telling the differences between viruses based on what's around them, like based on how we classify them. So it's not genomic, it's not a real species difference, Mm -hmm. but it is a features difference, right? Mm -hmm. The second crazy word I used, tropism. Tropism is how we kind of describe what type of cells these viruses like to infect. Mm So when we say like AAV2 has a tropism for X tissues, it just means we're just saying that it prefers to infect these types of tissues. And this tends to right. be about like what receptors are on those cells yeah. uh, and which ones are more amenable. Right. And last crazy word I use is transduction efficiency. What do I mean by that? Once this virus is in the cell and it puts its genes out there, there's a question of how much of that gene will it make? You can make tons of that gene from one DNA strand, or you can make not very good, not a a high transduction efficiency. So that's kind Mm -hmm. of what I'm getting at. How much of that gene or protein is being made off one copy of the viral genome? Mm -hmm.
2: Does that depend on the virus or the cell itself? Because I would think that, like, okay, yeah, because the efficiency of, like, DNA transduction or, like, you know, turning DNA into proteins or, yeah, um, Mm -hmm. would depend on the cell. Like, the virus really doesn't have any say in that,
1: I would think. That's not quite true. Mm -hmm. The virus has a say. The virus has a say. Because, sorry, I'm going to let CNN explain it. Well, I don't know if I'm going to... The
0: answer that I (laughs) know, but that is just, like, the in-my-heart answer that I picked up through, you know, putting pieces together throughout my PhD. But I've not been told this explicitly, so, like, I could still be wrong, I think, is that the transduction efficiency is also dependent on, like how easy like similar to tropism you know certain serotypes prefer different cell types but also then the virus is more or less efficient at getting into any cell that it's shown so yeah okay its own ability to get into the cell and then get like the put the dna in the cell is relevant to the transduction efficiency
1: you're 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 exactly even if you give
0: it its favorite cell type it might still you might have a thousand you might need a thousand viral particles to infect one cell, a, you or you know might that. need mm-hmm. two viral particles to infect two cells and that's like a really high transduction
1: efficiency that's like one-to-one exactly and so, but the, so there's that's one component of things and then there's another component of like the actual dna sequence itself right the dna sequence depending on like the type of we know we, this is a whole other deep, uh, deep lore of biology. But, deep lore. <laughs> you know the promoter region. We talked about transcription factors before, mm-hmm. right? And their tra- their signatures. These it's viruses the kind of like hijack, right, our transcription factors to make the RNA then the protein. Mm-hmm. I should know right. that these adenoviruses have very small genomes, four kb. I want to, you know, like, you know, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're that's tiny. That's only
0: 4,000 base pairs.
1: That's only 4,000 like base have, pairs. We have, oh, that's what KBs. We for.
0: have single genes that are bigger than that. Like, yeah, exactly. very
1: small. It's very tiny. Um, but, and in that, they have all these different genes that allow it to, you know, tell it to tell it where to go, what factors to hijack from us, all these factors. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, we have the cell intrinsic behavior of like whether or not the cell will be receptive to a transgene, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we mm-hmm. call these, once the gene is inside, we call it a transgene because it's not our genes. It's not a cis gene. It's not us. It's a transgene, okay? Right. So uh, from from outside in this scenario. So like I said, you no, know, go ahead.
0: Uh, this, we can cut this out. But some <laughs> we'll viruses see. have a genome that has like, is a really good, intense, in detail set of instructions on how to build another virus. And then some viruses... Have like a one page IKEA <laughs> manual <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> on how to build themselves.
1: I love that. I think we, and I want, I'll show you guys again that table of all the different viruses. But here's, yeah. you know, this is also in line with their genomes as well. So, like I said, yeah, r- mm-hmm. these retroviruses can have like 6 KB, lentiviruses are some of the bigger ones, 10 KB, yeah. an actual adenovirus, like the common cold, big boy. 30 kb, 30 kilobases. Mm-hmm. Herpes virus also huge. So, you know, and then can a, a, I also a ask a clarifying question? Of course, maybe. definitely.
0: I thought the common cold was a uh, rhinovirus.
1: Oh, maybe. But I is have rhinovirus a rhinovirus
0: and adenovirus. I don't.
1: Let's know. let's find out so we can edit that out <laughs> or not. One second. I know the cold is a rhinovirus,
2: but I don't know enough about viruses. Yeah, yeah, yeah me, it me neither. Same, it was a class.
0: Now I had a doctor where, the podcast where we always need a different type of scientist because we end up in tough questions. <laughs> you are right. right.
2: <laughs> I don't think there's been an episode yet where we haven't Googled something. No, you know, I think <laughs>
1: rhinovirus is a common cold. You're right about that. So what, what's adenovirus? Let me correct myself here. Adenovirus disease, whatever. Also cold-like symptoms. That's why okay. I thought so. Yeah. I, well, I was going to say, I feel like the common cold
0: is also like a collection of symptoms that can be viruses. caused by multiple viruses. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So let, let me add in the correction here. We can put it in later or just say it now. The yeah. rhinovirus causes common cold. Adenovirus causes cold-like symptoms. Okay. So moving on. Uh, like I said, we have 13 serotypes, right, of this AAV. Mm-hmm. And this, this is where things get cool. Right. Because mm-hmm. that means that different AAVs infect different tissues at different rates or at different efficiencies. Mm-hmm. And so here I have a fun little list <laughs> of which AAVs. And I'm going to an important note here. These are called these are wild type AAVs. OK. Yeah. This is not a perfect list, to be clear. But wild type AAVs, as in they came, they are they contain the same sequence as their their parents, their, their originators. We haven't done anything to them because there's a whole subset mm-hmm. of new AAVs that humans have used um bioengineering to basically hack and play with them so that we can get even broader or different um what's the word i used earlier uh tropisms tropisms right so to affect different places but for now let's focus on these uh 13 which are actually nine on this list right I have to say mm-hmm. very pretty love the colors i know the colors are all made up anyway exactly. but loving loving the colors very and they're very unique right these are very very small viruses they're tiny like i said small genome as well to match and they don't look like the coronavirus you know everyone sees like the, the coronavirus classic you know healths crowns but this is more like a spiky ball you don't want to kick Okay. It
0: looks like a dryer mm-hmm. ball, but yeah, <laughs> yeah I scale like that. that down to
1: very, very small. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, for the sake, you know, this is, this is the case in mice, but I also have the stereotypes in the uh, tropisms in humans underneath. But for like AAV1, for example, it's like liver, heart, skeletal, skeletal muscle. Mm-hmm. AAV2, liver, heart, and muscle. I'm going to tell you guys a secret here. Liver loves to be infected by AAV. Yeah, I was going to say, okay? liver is promiscuous I that say, way. They're all... <laughs> <laughs> right, it's, it's <laughs> livers all over the place. Um, any thoughts about this? I want to hear your, you know.
0: This most list doesn't list like uh, the CNS tissue types, which I see in your uh, table below. Brain for a couple, but yeah,
1: yeah. these call a brain. Uh, bearing in interested. Mind, go ahead.
0: I'm only only interested because we talked earlier about the AAV gene therapy for the retinal degeneration disease, mm-hmm. um, and I know that in our lab we use AAV2 for retinal. Mm-hmm in transduction because that one is apparently pretty good for it what we're trying to achieve but I don't know
1: if um, they
0: would that use AAV2 or yeah. a different one Who's
1: so pick? I think you nailed it on head. so for the CNS this is not a perfect list but AAV2 does infect retinal. so you're doing a good job don't worry oh yeah and retinal I mean,
0: pigment epithelium is on this new list here we exactly. go so yeah they probably well yeah I don't know which they got five to choose from that's great
1: exactly it works out and they, these ones have different ones I think AAV8 mm-hmm. is probably like probably one of the Higher efficiencies, but AAV also has yeah. its issues. Like you're trying to balance, like getting specific uh, targeting exactly. and you know <laughs> not impacting the uh, liver, which we'll get into why it's an <laughs> annoying little issue. So you know, like particularly diseases of the liver are awesome to treat with AAV. Okay, <laughs> so <I'll, laughs> we'll get into that a bit later. Um, so yeah, uh, particularly interest for me and also for Sienna, I'm sure is the central nervous system, right? Our goal is often, in the disease that we work with, ALS for myself and MS for Siena, our goal is to infect the neurons. And so we like to use things like AAV9, AAV8. And I want to signal back to another episode. I'm killing it today with the back, yes. the vaccines. The, uh, <laughs> but in the cell refate episode, we talked about how um, the cells, the retinal ganglion cells were infected with um, AAV. Okay, great. What else is cool about AAV? So much more. It, it, we've, we've gotten into tropism, we've gotten into transduction efficiencies, but it gets even more interesting. So AAVs, once they're inside the cell, they will retain themselves as what's called an episome. Okay? 90% of the time. Let me be clear. <laughs> 90% of the time. Which is pretty good for a virus. What that means is that mm-hmm. without the adenovirus helping out or any other virus helping out, it won't integrate into our genomes. It'll just hang out. In our genome on a specific chromosome. And that's where it gets really cool. It's not random. Mm. It goes to a specific chromosome. It's chromosome 19. Okay. Oh. And it likes to hang out there. Chromosome
0: but 19 is small.
1: Chromosome 19 is small.
0: That's what I know about chromosome 19. That's all I know about it.
1: <laughs> but it's great because it contains this site called the AAVS or the AAV signal. Okay. Huh. This has been conserved in us for, like, through evolution. Okay. Um, There's a lot of reasons. Go
0: ahead. Uh, can I just go a brief tangent? Please. This, where I'm not going to say anything of use, but maybe something that'll like pique people's <laughs> interest so they go like Google more is that like there's a lot of reasons why we would retain like viral sequences and like viral interacting sequences in our genome and especially in our CNS tissue. Like our brain depends on a lot of viral sequences and probably has a bunch of viruses associated with it. So very cool, cutting-edge research into this stuff of why, um, why our tissues interact with viruses and how useful it is for us.
1: Exactly. Mm. We should do an episode on that someday. Go Google so, it. I, I can't say any more than that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so like I said, uh, 90% of the time they hang out at chromosome 19 and they just sit there, um, thanks to the expression of these two proteins called the rep proteins. Don't worry too much about them, but they act like transcription factors where they'll hold the DNA, the episomal viral DNA. When I say episomal, it's I'm saying epi because above the genome, we've talked about that before, mm-hmm. right? And it's like it's like mm-hmm. its own little chromosome. Yeah. So zomal, episomal, not part of ours. Uh, it's like an ice chromosome. climber, and it
0: stuck its pick into
1: the it's, genome. And yeah, and it's rep the reps are the, life. yeah. The, these rep <laughs> proteins are like the the ice pick there. <laughs> so, they hang out there, um, at these rep binding sites. Very cool. And mm-hmm. the other cool thing is that they're able to transduce dividing and non-dividing cells. And that's mm-hmm. an important thing because most viruses mm-hmm. only infect uh, dividing cells. And that's a yes problem. Our neurons mm-hmm. on a general I'm gonna I'm gonna say ninety-eight percent of the time are not dividing. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave room for those who like you know, for those who are researching that because there is yeah. there's still research going on with that. Um, so that's an important one, and our muscle cells don't aren't dividing once they've become muscle the pre Mm -hmm. pre muscles are dividing it's like the pre neurons might be dividing we'll get it that's another whole other episode too we
0: don't even need to talk (laughs) about it but neurons pretty much (laughs) don't (laughs) divide don't worry exactly
1: (laughs) so that's important right again for diseases right when we want to treat individuals Um, and Mm -hmm. the important thing is that it's particularly nice to do gene therapy in cells that don't divide because it allows for the therapy to hang out there for a long time Mm -hmm. when cells divide Right, this episome doesn't divide like the other DNA that we have, so it ends up getting diluted in dividing cells over time. Mm-hmm. Right, so like think like again, like I said earlier, like a liver disease, your liver divides like crazy all the time, mm-hmm. and um, that makes it great <laughs> and also difficult for treating certain diseases. You need a chronic treatment in that scenario because you'll dilute out the episome from the AAV in this scenario. Right. So now, what are you know what are the It sounds all good right like we have this virus (laughs) that this he's like this this cargo that can go in uh all these things so like the first challenge i would say is size right uh like sienna said some of our proteins are massive (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) and this thinking of like um Mm
0: -hmm. we talked about duchenne's muscular dystrophy at the beginning as being a monogenic disease Mm -hmm. yet that disease does not is not one of the there's no fda approved gene therapy for it And possibly Mm. one of the reasons why I'm pretty sure the dystrophin gene is the one that's uh, mutated in Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Mm. And it's massive, like it's bigger than the cargo size of most viruses. Exactly. It's Mm. not going to be an easy feat to figure out how to gene therapy that into
2: genes. You need kind of like a a viral cargo convoy and they all just go and wow. each having a piece of it of and the... then you can wow. like, stitch
0: it up together once it gets into yeah. the cell that's the idea i'm completely i don't know man uh you should not say that on the podcast you should patent that <laughs>
1: <laughs> i want to say something important that you exactly hit on the head what the strategy is to deal with those kinds of diseases <laughs> that's exactly what they do we send in viruses that actually have you know one i also want to mention that the aav is single-stranded dna so that's also a fun unique thing about it that's single-stranded dna and we have a second virus you know that has kind of an overlapping sequence but has the rest of the gene right mm-hmm. and in that scenario we can kind of double yeah. the size like Dub- piece it together exactly it'll piece it together once it's there yeah
2: you said single-stranded dna mm-hmm. that that, that doesn't make sense to me because I thought DNA was double stranded and
1: RNA was single stranded. Oh, but RNA has different base pairs. So okay, that's. Never mind. So I answered my own whether something's single stranded or double stranded just really depends on um, how do I put this? Your, your mechanism, right, of how you uh, are going to divide later. We have, you okay. know, we have chromosomes that uh, allow for double stranded DNA and retention of this information. We're we we use double-stranded dna as our means of um retaining that information but that's not a necessity right single-stranded okay. dna can also carry that information no problem mm-hmm. and in fact it's the single-stranded dna i wasn't gonna get into this but we're here this single-stranded dna is not really single-stranded it in fact binds on itself it ends up making a double-strand oh, okay. because of that anyway like a hairpin like a hairpin exactly cool. has struct- has structure to it right yeah. uh rna mm-hmm. does too but again another podcast RNA it's, structures wild. <laughs> i love it it's, it's everything so let's let's look at how this virus gets in now that we you know i see some of these issues let's get a cool representation of what Ooh, it looks like uh, 3D. Rem- Ooh, 3d um this is definitely going on the social medias yeah. um And so you can see exactly like we're talking about, these AAVs, they're outside, they have a capsid, which is kind of like Mm -hmm. this like cool Lego-like structure outside, very geometrically fun. Um, And it will Mm -hmm. go to the receptor on a cell. There's tons of different receptors for AAVs. I'm not gonna list them all. Um, And then the membrane of the cell itself, the membrane will kind of envelope it and allow it to go inside, right? Then the envelope gets broken down the virus makes its way to the nucleus and it injects its DNA and just shoots it in okay and then it goes to chromosome 19 like we talked about and bang now we have our cargo delivered to the nucleus and game on um this DNA with the new gene on it um going to chromosome 19
2: is it kind of like a sticky note in a textbook or like <laughs> you put a sticky note and like it has a new
1: like Addendum? It's not really an addendum, it's more like we put a whole new page in. There's a page that's like messed up and has errors, and we put in an error that- a page that has the correct uh, So does it actually, like, if you
2: have, if you have your DNA sequence mm-hmm. all the, the going along, does it insert itself
1: in there? Or does it just like, you said like ice pick kind of exactly. hangs, off hangs off the side. it hangs off the side as an episome. exactly. Okay. It doesn't go in. Okay. Ten percent of the time it can't. Ten percent, and that's random, mm. okay? An, and this is important. We'll get into why that randomness is also another <laughs> hurdle. Okay. So we talked about the first hurdle being, you know, this size. Let's get into the hurdles that are ourselves and the virus. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and things that we have to think about when we're generating these therapies. The first one is the immune system itself. Okay. We have an immune system that doesn't like viruses being inside us. That's that's bad. You know, we put <laughs> in a put virus. It. Exactly. <laughs> Good job. Right. Um, and so... The good thing about AAV, interestingly, is it doesn't, um, doesn't actually lead to a response from our adaptive immune system. So that's our second line of defense. Basically, when these AAVs go in and they go into the cell, they're not making more of themselves. And so the adaptive immune system can't really see pieces of that, of that virus to make a memory of it. It's just like, oh, it's, it's there and it's gone. It's like Houdini, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> right? <laughs> but... Exactly. But because I mentioned earlier that we get infected with these adeno, uh, uh, sorry, adeno-associated viruses and their adeno-partners, adenoviral partners. Mm-hmm. So we, our body has seen adenovirus before, right? So we have what's called neutralizing antibodies inside of us, okay? Mm-hmm. Those neutralizing antibodies, to put it as simple as they can, they'll bind the virus, okay? And they'll just shut it down, you know? No. like think like you know um i hope this has never happened someone but when your car gets like it's wheels locked by like the police or by like a tow truck or whatever have you seen those like gadgets where they put mm-hmm. on wheels to like mm-hmm. stop them it's like that like we do that to the virus with our neutralizing antibodies in that scenario it can't infect it can no longer bind the receptor of the cell in the image i showed and internalize itself into the cell mm-hmm. so that's one first you know uh first conversation having mean, like literally i think it's like 90 percent of humans have, <laughs> have these neutralizing antibodies. So that's step one, okay? Step two. This is where we get into the integration component of things I was talking about. That 10% of time where it does integrate. This is particularly important um, because I also mentioned earlier that these guys love to pool in the liver, okay? Mm-hmm. And this happens, as you expect, most of these therapies are delivered systemically. And what I mean by that is that we put it straight into the bloodstream. Now, there are other new ways of things, uh, ways to do this, so I'm not saying that's the only way. But generally, current, the therapies that are currently approved are IV. Uh, what does that mean? That it filters through the liver. <laughs> that's number mm. one. The liver is one of the main places where old bloods, red blood cells go to die, and also where our blood effectively gets filtered. Because of that, and because the AAVs like liver cells, they tend to go into there. Now, a 90% chance of non-integration, great. That 10% chance suddenly skyrockets, right? Because mm-hmm. 10% of every 100 cells is still whatever, 10 cells, right? Not good. And these liver cells, like I said, are dividing and are rapidly dividing. Mm-hmm. And so it can lend itself to hepatocarcinoma, meaning liver, and cancer.
0: If it integrates in a dividing cell, mm-hmm. that, that doesn't get diluted,
1: Exactly. That's that stays. That'll
0: probably stay. But yeah, it's it's gonna stay more strongly than like something that was just ice picked to the wall would.
2: Mm-hmm. Is integration not the goal for
1: the therapy in the se- in the target cells though? Not anymore. Like, don't you want it to integrate? Not necessarily. If we wanted to integrate, we need to do that. That's something that could be nice if we could direct the integration much more precisely, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And epigenetics is a huge, huge factor here um so yeah. mm-hmm. right now it, existing as an episome, and those episomes are highly highly stable they, they last for years there's no need for us to try and integrate and hope that it integrates in the right place one wrong integration can lead to oh, of course a, yeah. a, a cancer the the yeah
2: the, the gene that you're wanting to fix mm-hmm. um, uh, might not be on Chromosome 19. Um, uh, chromosome 19, exactly. But it also, I yeah. guess it might just so.
0: integrate randomly into the genome. Which it does. Which is exactly. actually the mm. larger concern because then it could interrupt a, a different gene that you do also need. Exactly. I mean, and so that's important. Or create, like, a fusion gene that is cancerous or something.
1: Exactly. And this has happened before, like... Franken gene. Exactly. And this has happened before, like I said before, with the retroviruses. Now, these aren't adenoviruses, but retroviruses like to integrate, and it can lead to, like, leukemia that we saw in in the other example. Mm. But there has been evidence, at least in mouse models, where, like, at high doses of AAV, this can also promote um, hepatocarcinoma. So not good. A concern Mm -hmm. that we need to keep in mind uh, when we're doing these... um, uh, gene therapies um and it can also it's also the reason why forget cancer for a moment but when we treat people with aav one of the main things that we look for are signs of liver inf- inflammation like we look for that right away um because the virus tends to pool there and so we want to make sure that it stays um you know invisible right um and like i said most of these viruses don't actually amount much of immune response in the first place um but they can in bad some scenarios And so I also brought up the fact that these are wild type AAVs that go to chromosome 19. We also have recombinant ones that we've bioengineered, and these ones don't go to chromosome 19. These ones tend to be more random, but they integrate less. So, you know, we Mm. take that we take that win in those scenarios. Okay, super cool. Uh, We have all we've kind of seen the negatives of AAV. We've seen the positives. of it. It seems when you weigh out the negatives for people who have like a disease that has a low prognosis, ALS for my field, five years, right? Mm-hmm. I would take an AAV, no, know, even knowing these risks personally. But of course, that's for each individual to decide that. But I think, as a wide-scale drug approval kind of administration, I think it's on uh, on them to see when there's efficacy, uh, and mm-hmm. we're seeing expression of these genes that you know it's a good thing to approve in these scenarios. And so that's exactly mm-hmm. you know just to show how exciting this field is now. We have tons. Um, this is like a small list of the current f- clinical trials that are ongoing for different AAVs. Wow. And they all have the kind of unique struggles that go beyond what I talked about. Um, one of them being, for example, cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis has a, uh, an interesting conundrum to deal with. Um, it's the, cl- the clinical trials are very positive and they use an aerosol rather than an IV. So like I told you, we're, we're, we're smart, we think outside the box can use an aerosol to get right into the lungs but the problem with cftr or sorry with cf um, is that the lung itself has a lot of mucus and fluid that you have to get past that the virus has to get past in order yeah. to infect the proper cells the second part is that your lung okay loves to shed itself very often its cells are rapidly dividing so the response is constantly getting diluted But it also then means an aerosol is actually a really great option (laughs) for something like this. It's not invasive in the same way. You're not like, you don't have to get an IV uh, adapter set up for you. Like, you can just pump it in and hopefully it works out nicely. Right. Uh, Hemophilia B is another one um, that's ongoing. Arthritis is being uh, uh, addressed. Uh, Alzheimer's is attempting to be addressed. SM, uh, spinal muscular atrophy, like we talked about. And there's many others. So, you know, the field it's blowing up.
2: Yeah, these are all clinical trials mm-hmm. of gene therapies that haven't yet been approved. Some have. Two of them four have. four that have
1: been approved. Oh, sorry. I'm, oh. One has. Sorry. My mistake. One has. I'm lying. One has. On the Oh, okay. System.
2: Yeah, because yeah, that, that one was on the other table. Mm-hmm. But there's only, there's only four approved ones currently. Yeah,
0: only four currently approved.
2: But But this is just... Gene therapies in trials that use AAV. Exactly. So there's like yeah. probably even more using other uh, vectors. Yes, right?
1: there are. Exactly. And right now it's even wow. moving towards like, really cool. like I said, like the lipid nanoparticles, like we've done with the RNA ones, like mm-hmm. that's being developed now as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Moderna it's probably like really moving fast with these kinds of things so
3: yeah
1: uh, they're focusing right now on uh vaccines which is you know i'm not gonna say that's bad that's great yeah. <laughs> but uh i think they will also then start planting their feet into other diseases and mm-hmm. using this for gene therapy in the future
0: one other thing i notice about a lot of these and i think it's something interesting to also like take into consideration about both like the development of a clinical trial for a gene therapy and the potential outcomes it's like for example for parkinson's disease on this list you know they're doing two genes GAD 65 and GAD 67. Um, and there's only like 12 subjects in this clinical mm. trial. And the reason for that is, uh, you know, Parkinson's disease, there's a lot of genetic mutations that are familially linked. So that means they're assumed to be the actual probably causative gene involved in the development of that disease because there's like a familial pattern of inheritance of the disease. And that usually co segregates or like, goes along with then the inheritance of this specific gene mutation but these are also like incredibly 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 rare gene mutations so gad 65 and gad 67 are not like i don't even think they're the most common gene mutations for familial parkinson's and then also like the majority of cases of parkinson's are not even familial to begin with they're sporadic or we don't know what gene causes them so There's Mm. like, it's tough to, for a lot of diseases, it's tough to even design clinical trials for them or the clinical trials have a very small potential pool of patients because, um, you know, here you have to not only find, like you have to find a Parkinson's disease patient with the mutation in one of those two genes. And those are the people you're drawing from. Parkinson's disease is a rare disease. That means less than 1% of the population. And then probably less than 1% of the Parkinson's disease patients have that mutation.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. You nailed it tiny, on the tiny, 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 tiny numbers. Exactly. These diseases are represented by the fact that they are rare and therefore the clinical trials end so up being small. So then it's also
0: hard to like even then study and figure out whether or not a specific gene therapy for a specific gene in certain circumstances where we believe that the disease that we're trying to cure is caused by that gene is cured by the gene therapy. Like it's very challenging for certain
2: diseases. Mm. Mm-hmm. Do you know, um, mm-hmm. um, talking about vaccines and, you know, using that technology for gene therapy, I heard recently that there is a HIV yep. yeah. vaccine in development. It's already is in phase, in...
1: I think, phase two, if I want to say, if, I, if I'm so, correct. Yeah. Is that like a gene, would that be considered a gene therapy? Do you know, I don't know much about it. It's still it, a so. vaccine. I, I consider it under okay. like gene therapy-esque, right? Because it's like, you are- <laughs> the you, Gene therapy light. Because you, you're not replacing a gene in that scenario. You're like adding in a gene for your body to recognize, right? So it's not right. a therapy right. in the same way. So it's like a gene vaccine, but not a gene therapy, right? Yeah. So, gene vaccine. Exactly. But that's like, it's, it uses the same technology. It's the same idea, right? You, we, if, I want to say something important here like the vaccines, some of them use adenovirus like to make a vaccine, mm. right, to, as a payload. That's right. exactly how the Johnson & Johnson vaccine works. Mm-hmm. It's an adenovirus, oh. right? And inside that adenovirus has DNA and that DNA is the COVID vaccine, is the, is the vaccine itself, right? So yeah, very cool. Right. So, you know, we talked about clinical trials. This is probably a great segue uh, into the paper today, okay? And we're gonna be talking about right. the SMA gene therapy which is with one of the wildest names I've ever seen, ever, um, but like I said, they're all like this. Uh, uh, Onesemnogene on abepovovec gene therapy, I nailed it for sure, um, for symptoms of infantile onset spinal muscular tr- tr- uh, atrophy. In patients with two copies of SMN2, that's one of the genes that they look for. Uh, that I get, yeah, with two copies of SMN2. Uh, and so it's an open-label, single-arm, multi-central phase 3 trial. These are all, you know, open-label means they know what they're getting, right? Single-arm mm-hmm. means there's only one treatment. Multicenter means across multiple different centers, different hospitals. Phase 3 means they've done the the toxicity studies, and they've also done the immune response studies, okay? And safety studies. So now it's just a matter of... Does it actually resolve disease? Okay, in this scenario. So these are very short uh, papers. I love them for that, um, and I figured it'd be fun for us to go through it together as scientists and getting to like the meat of the data very quickly. So, like I said, all of these you know open-label, single-arm, single-dose, phase three. Not that you know these are. What's the point is that they've treat, they're treating young patients younger than six months. Okay, who have SMN one mutations. Okay, SMN1 in this scenario is called survival motor neuron gene 1 or survival motor neuron 1. That's it's a really important gene for motor neurons, right? That control your muscles, right? Or your movement. Okay? And if you don't have these motor neurons, you will unfortunately pass very quickly, right? Not a good thing. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, you can see how it's really important to treat these. These patients receive a one-time intravenous infusion, intravenous systemic like I said of this uh, AAV, okay? Uh, in this scenario, they use AAV9. So uh, for 30 to 60 minutes, it's a lot. It's a big load of, of viral genome. Uh, and they do it mm-hmm. uh, one time. During outpatient follow-up, patients were assessed once a week, beginning at day seven. So day seven after. So there's six months and seven days, okay? Uh, post-infusion for six weeks, and then once a month until the end. So 18 months is kind of their end point. They were trying to get to late stage disease most of these children die at 24 months Hmm. so two years old uh so they're what they were looking for were outcomes are and this is you know very um pediatrically determined because these the the positive outcomes here are kind of you'll see is kind of interesting but they need to be be able to be able to sit up for 30 seconds or longer that's a sign of muscular fitness for an infant um and also survival itself, right? At age 14 months, were there more, was there more survival compared to the control group? Bearing in mind, like, there's, yeah, go ahead.
0: Uh, it says like survival free from permanent ventilation. So like at yes. this like, mm. stage of the disease, a lot of these kids can't
1: like breathe. Breathe on their own. Exactly. Um, and so, uh, and the, the control group here, like I said, is the data set. It's not these uh 14 i forgot how to write no sorry it's more than 14 it's 22 patients 22 patients and the rest of the data set is previous patients that have passed uh, from this uh, disease between these two dates 22 patients with spinal muscular atrophy type 1 were eligible and received this aav 13 of them of the 22 patients achieved functional independent sitting for 30 seconds or longer at 18 months of age visit that's Really good. We're talking more than 50% of the patients had a response to this drug, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, And 20 patients, let's make sure I read that right, 20 patients survived free of permanent ventilation at 14 months. Again, a huge, huge increase, okay? Mm
3: -hmm.
1: All patients who received this uh, drug had, so only one had, uh, each one had at least one adverse event. What that means, it doesn't mean like they all had some terrible outcome. It can be even like liver inflammation or some sign that they're, you know, not, uh, not something to be concerned about.
0: They're also not necessarily related to treatment. It just exactly, they had a um, something. They had a something yeah. mm-hmm. during the mm-hmm.
2: clinical period. Yeah. Go Can ahead. They say here that the most common was pyrexia. What is pyrexia?
1: Pyrexia is a fever. Oh, okay. So that's so actually
0: the not most brain, common infant mm-hmm. adverse event was a fever.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, not necessarily related to the drug, but it could. But be. it could
0: be. But it also, yeah, yeah like I said, not necessarily true
1: but all treatable, you know, that's the thing. So at the end of it, so interpretation results from this multi-center trial build on findings from the phase one start study. That's what they call their phase one start uh, by showing safety and efficacy, like I said, uh, has statistical superiority and superiority clinical meaningful responses when compared to observations from the natural history cohort. Like I said, that's a database. So the favorable benefit risk profile shown in the study supports the use of this AAV for treatment of uh, sma right so very cool very positive so far this is usually the bulk of the data because i'll show you guys here there's a lot of work that goes into these clinical trials um it's usually it's a huge effort hundreds of folks are working uh on making sure like the patients are aware of the risks are also we have like appropriate um what's the word uh selection of patients right because we want to make sure we're treating the correct disease and treating things uh, appropriately um and yeah making sure we have we know what we're working with basically we're trying to because humans are a diverse group of folks um and so they did a really good job i think even on how they selected their um patients i think they you know these are all young children typically like i said mm-hmm. but six months is when they usually start you know um and then even like, i thought even like the race stats were pretty good like they were able to 50 percent mm-hmm. white 27 percent other Fourteen percent black, two percent Asian. It's it's pretty representative, mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nine percent Asian. Nine percent Asian. What I say? Two. You, you said Two. Sorry, my reading comprehension standard. is not on it today. Sorry, but it's fairly representative of you know what we see day to day. So you know that's yeah. that's a good sign mm-hmm. that people are doing uh, their due diligence to some degree. Um, Can we scroll mm-hmm.
0: up to the previous figure on the definitely letters, this um, flowchart?
1: Yes, so let's talk about that. So like I said, at the beginning of the trial, they were able to identify 26 patients with SMA. Um, four of them were ineligible. What makes someone ineligible? One unfortunately died prior to the beginning. Um, one had a body weight that was lower than third percentile. That's very concerning because if you have a low body weight, it tends to be predispose you to efficacy for therapeutic intervention, right? You want to have like a healthy body weight, because these can tend to mount an immune response, because, which can make any reason that you're losing body weight even worse. So we mm-hmm. want to keep that in mind. And two of them had signs of aspiration or inability to tolerate non-thickened liquids. This is a really, really important aspiration issues. And particularly if you can't breathe, it's yeah, If you can't breathe appropriately, it's gonna, it's already kind of signs that the disease may have gone too far. And the ability to tolerate non-thicken uh, liquids, I looked into this a little bit because I don't know a lot about this. But this has, my understanding is that this has to do with the ability to actually uh, be able to take the drug itself intravenously, mm. right? And it's also a symptom of SMA, right? Mm. So it makes it difficult for intervention if you are at that stage in SMA, right? right? So at the end of this, 22 enrolled, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and then this is also really important three of them discontinued the trial Um, one had an adverse event we're not sure exactly whether that's drug related or not one had passed during the trial and one withdrew from the study Mm -hmm. Uh, they talk about the withdrawal yeah the guardian withdrew consent at age 11.9 months after the patient met the definition of requiring permanent non-invasive ventilation at age 11 months so I'm not. It's not super clear. <laughs> I would say for me at least, mm-hmm. there might be something to if someone can interpret that better than me. But they decided not to continue. Uh, I think. Yeah, in the trial. Yeah. Um, that could be mm-hmm. many reasons. But anyway, uh, the point is at the end of this trial, here's here's the one figure with the trial data, and they mm-hmm. show each child, each individual patient, numbered uh, numbered one through twenty two. Mm-hmm. And they show each stage or each criteria that they kind of hit here. And, you know, uh, the first is when they actually administered them. So they show the age when they administered the first uh, dose. It's not always four months, but it's in and around that time. And then they show how many of them were able to hit these sits independently and at what stage they were able to sit independently because that varies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and some one was not confirmed at uh, 18 months, but was confirmed at 17 months instead. Um, Mm. I should note as well uh, one thing when you read this paper. This sits independently. It's just when they were able to sit independently and they were able to continue until eight months. 18 months, sorry. So -hmm. they were still good. It's just this is the stage at which they were able to do that.
2: Oh, I see. So the triangle is like when they first were able to do it and then from then on. Exactly. Because
0: I also presume that for like potentially for some like uh, infants with SMA. It's possible they might reach the milestone of being able to sit independently, but then, due to muscle wasting and like muscle disease, lose the ability.
3: Exactly,
1: mm. gain it. So and I think lose it.
0: About, that's why it's also important to confirm that it is remains.
1: Exactly. All right. So that's you know it's very positive. You know we're getting mm-hmm. you know like I mm-hmm. said fifty percent of these uh, patients are able to uh, sit up by 18, 18 months. They're yeah. also able to, and this is really important. These are quality of life metrics. Right, yeah. um, uh, what's called morbidity, so ability to tolerate the thin liquids. Like I said, fifty percent of them are able to do so. Fed exclusively by the mouth, like we talk about, the tongue is a really really interesting muscle, and also mm-hmm. controlled by the cortex. And eighty-six percent of them are able to uh, be fed through the mouth, and then maintain a consistent weight with age. Uh, we're talking sixty-four percent of them. You know, the weight the weight loss that's associated with muscle loss is very similar to like anorexia. Right, and so that's a sign of the the atrophy as well. But overall, very positive results for these infants, uh, and they're continuing now to be tracked uh, for, you know, the continuation and yeah. uh, and their prognosis effectively. They they are hitting metrics that were not being hit before this therapy was available. So it's very positive mm-hmm. news um, mm-hmm. in general. And then if you want, if you are interested <laughs> in like the actual um, adverse events. Bearing in mind that, you know, the drug related events, I think there's only just two or three um, and they have an asterisk because even then they can't necessarily prove that that's the case. And I told you guys earlier about the liver inflammation, right? Here are two of them mm-hmm. here. These aspartate aminotransferase, alanine aminotransferase increases, signs of some liver uh, impact, but very, very minimal and not really and kind of expected as well from the drug. Right. Also treatable. Um, and, yeah. the, and, I, and I think in most of these trials, uh, they, treat the, they treat the patients with prophylactics as well to try and like, fight off uh, any um, potential infection or uh, disease. Well, I shouldn't say disease, but impact from the drug or secondary effects. Just trying to keep like a more sterile environment for the kids in general. Mm-hmm. So overall, very positive. <laughs> you know, they're all doing, they, the majority but, of them are doing very well. Uh, and teething it's, is uh,
0: on the list of adverse events.
1: Teething is on there exactly. They, st- they started teething, but they have to know anything, right? And- yeah,
0: no, I know. That's it's it's funny, and I think mm-hmm. like maybe interesting to our listeners to know that you know, like mm-hmm. they really list everything that might happen.
1: Exactly, like, and these.
2: I was gonna say, mm-hmm. I was gonna say nasal congestion's on there. I'm like, what kid doesn't have nasal congestion? <laughs> exactly. Like, what exactly. kid are not in this day and, day and age,
1: <laughs> but they know exactly. everything. I, I I used to work for a yeah. uh, company that did phase uh, phase one, two, three trials. And it's you. Yeah. You can get some patients who call in and say like, "Oh, I have this sym- sym- symptom," and we have to like add it in. Call yeah. the FDA. Call um, Canada Health. Uh, why am I forgetting what it's called right now? Or the EMA, the European Medical Agency. Why am I forgetting Canada's Health? Health it Canada. Health. It's Ca- Health Canada. It's Health Canada. Yeah. Canada. So yeah, Canada. <laughs> You're forgetting like, it because <laughs> you were kind of there already. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Health exists true. So Health Canada as well. So we have to like call them and like amend the protocol and add these things and it's very like a a tough process but in general this is Mm -hmm. this is some really really great data it is a small group but that's expected that's part of the nature of this kind of trial Uh, especially when Mm -hmm. you're seeing such a huge response to a drug there's sometimes you don't you don't even get responses like this like some of the best examples are like the statin um clinical Mm -hmm. trials where like the statin inhibitors where they show like a five percent change a five percent change and five uh, percent difference sorry and they tout yeah. that as like some big effect it is an effect it's statistically correct and because of that yeah. it was approved but despite that uh this is a really good clinical trial compared to many others so yeah.
2: I, I think it's interesting just generally in the study um yeah they only had 22 participants but amazing results Mm -hmm. i think there's more authors on this paper than there were participants in the study (laughs) yes (laughs) or at least there's more institutions the institutions are all listed on the (laughs) side there and i think there's more institutions than participants in the study
1: bearing in mind that each of these institutions so there's like the there's like the faculty that works on this there's like the actual company that works on this and each individual pi at each hospital where each child is at right yeah so yeah yeah you're you're exactly right You've nailed it on the head. So yeah, it's really cool, very interesting. And uh, I hope that this gives our listeners kind of a little bit of a taste of what gene therapy has to offer. Um, And there's gonna be a lot more coming in the future that I can definitely say.
0: Do you have any idea, so this is, I mean, the last time I looked into this trial and like the SMA results, it was 2017, 2018, I think. So Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't this paper. I don't Mm. think it might not have even been phase three. It was probably phase two clinical trial results. And I think there were fewer patients. And also the one I remembered it being like spinal cord injection, pretty much Mm -hmm. like into the the cerebral spinal fluid. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was so I don't know if that though that clinical trial is related to this one. But I'm assuming that they also have patients from their phase two trial in this one no i mean i'm assuming the phase true trial also treated patients and do we have, right. or alternatively like the trial that i'm thinking of from 2017 2018 treated patients mm. so did you were you able to find anything on like the more longer term follow-up of these patients because like this only reports to 18 months but i of course am wondering or curious like for those people who were treated initially mm. i guess also these people that's clinical trial was done through 2017 to 2018 so actually that's right yeah i mean it says we only know they're only reporting on the 18 month endpoint mm -hmm. outcomes Mm -hmm. but you know you wonder it's now 2022 it's been five years how these Mm -hmm. kids are doing you know
1: yeah it's a good question i i looked at the website to try and find some like later data i haven't seen anything yet usually around five years is around the time they do some follow-ups right yeah um but yeah, I don't. I I didn't find any data on that. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe we should look. I should look into more anecdotal. Uh, you know, obviously they don't release the information to patients as like violation. Yeah, of course, right? of course, but, especially um, the defense. Um, exactly. So uh, it'd be interesting to see. Yeah, it's a really important question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know why they picked eighteen months as the endpoint? point? That's usually when the prognosis for SMA is twenty-four months, um, mm-hmm. and yeah. most patients wouldn't be able to sit up at that point of 18 months. So if you can see 18 months independent sitting, you've, you've hit a really important threshold. And like, especially for child development, usually around 18 months, most children are up and moving around at that point. If not younger mm-hmm. in some cases or older, it just depends on the development, but around that area. Right. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Yeah. I just wonder, cause like if they pick that endpoint, and you know, they justified that we've, we've reached this milestone, mm-hmm. um, follow-up five years later isn't necessary except for like your own curiosity right
1: well yeah and also knowing for example we have, there's a lot of questions about the aav itself how long is it lasting is it still in the neurons mm-hmm. do they need a follow-up True. dose like these that will that will require a whole new set of phase uh, clinical trials to determine if redosing is an important thing to do yeah. right um, exactly. and that's also like i said earlier with our immune response all these factors it's going to be a different have, it's going to have to be a different regimen in that scenario Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's really cool. So, yeah, really cool. yeah. I can try and come up with a quiz real quick. I just realized I didn't think of <laughs> one, but I think this episode is fairly long. <laughs> I love the quizzes. So, I'm not sure how you guys are feeling. It's fairly quiz, long. Right quiz, quiz, quiz. Okay. Quiz, 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 okay, quiz. quiz. quiz, quiz. <laughs> All right. I'll do my best here to come up with it. Okay. So, first question. Okay. Oh, wait. I need your buzzers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Hold the phone. Mm-hmm. I need Hold your
0: buzzers. Hold the phone. My buzzer is going to be bloop. That's the sound of the virus entering the cell.
1: Correct. <laughs>
2: um, one point, my, Sienna. <laughs> <laughs> my, my buzzer is going to be zzz, <laughs> And that's the sound of the DNA zipping and unzipping. The genes zipping also, up. <laughs>
1: also co- the correct the z- sound. It's zipping up genes. Oh my God, zipping. yes. It's also, me zipping up genes. <laughs> also the correct sound. Perfect. <laughs> so the fair, first question I'm going to ask is... Okay, let's start with this. Cystic fibrosis, ALS, SMA, Huntington's disease, all these diseases are examples of what types of disease? Bloop. (laughs) (laughs) Sienna, I heard the the virus enter first.
0: Monogenic rare diseases.
1: (laughs) Beautiful. Monogenic rare diseases. Great. One point, Sienna. Yes. Number two. How many AAVs, wild type, were identified by the um, group of uh, Bob Atchison? Zip. Nice, Alser. Uh, there were thirteen identified. 13. one. one Oh my God, it's tight. Okay, Alec, that, was a good, that was a good question. Okay, good. <laughs> neck and neck. Neck and neck. I'm asked this last one. Let's see who's paying attention to the list. Which AAV has has <laughs> this is evil? Which AAV has tropism for the kidney? Bloop. Go for it, Sienna.
0: I think it was AAV two. Also, do you have a thought?
1: Yes, I'm Depends was on, are you talking 86.
0: about on the mouse list or on the like, second table?
2: Ooh, yeah, good I question. Because I thought the
0: second table Is was at AAV2.
1: Well, I'll tell you, if nice I'm, there was no kidney on the first table, so you're correct, Sienna. Don't worry. Oh, <laughs> you're <were> correct. Yes. <laughs> Sienna nailed all that. That's <laughs> I only
0: know because I use AAV2, so when I saw the list, I scanned, I'm like, oh, interesting. Kidney, AAV2.
1: Okay. Let me ask one more fun bonus <laughs> question for, because ha- i even I'm having. This is fun getting now.
0: to be Attack on
1: Titan over here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, for for SMA, what's the gene that they are hoping to replace for the gene therapy? Bloop. Sienna.
0: Um, SMN two. Eh. SMN one.
1: SMN1. I think in some cases SMN. it's SMN2, but sorry. In some cases it is SMN2. SMN for this <laughs> for this trial, the approved one was SMN1. You're God. correct though. Sometimes it's SMN2. You're right. So I'll give you half a point <laughs> for that. You still win. So Well, Sienna wins. Yeah. So this was, I hope, fun and engage, uh, you know, learn lots episode. Um, I learned, lots, really I I learned a
0: lot and that's really important I use these things. Too. Yeah, <laughs> so. I learned a lot too. Yeah.
1: I've, I've had to learn this now and uh, I don't get to use these day to day, but... I hope to, you know, engage yeah. in this a little bit more. So, it's important that cool. it's important that we know the tech that we're working with and the tools and there's so much more. Like I just hit like the, you know, the tip of the iceberg when it comes to all the therapies that we can do. Yeah. So, but AV's, you know, super useful. Yeah. So, overall, um, I've been Om. I'm Alistair. I'm Sienna. And this has been Not Yet a Doctor. You can find us on all of our socials uh, at Not Yet a Doctor for like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and also at PhD32B at gmail.com. Send Thank us you emails. all. Yeah, send us emails. Tell us you love us. Tell us your newest AAV quip. Make
0: some cool and memes
1: and send them to us. We love memes. Yes, and we'll definitely post yeah. them on our socials. Yeah. Bye okay. all.
0: Thank you for listening. Bye.